This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and I'm very pleased today to have as my guest, Dr. Maura Irison, who is Dean of the College of Health Professions at Sacred Heart University College of Health Professions in Fairfield, Connecticut. Dr. Iverson, welcome. Thank you very much, Dr. Jetty. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we're going to talk about a systematic review that she and her colleagues recently published in PTJ. It's entitled Reporting of Adverse Events in Randomized Controlled Trials of Therapeutic Exercise for Hip Osteoarthritis. I was really pleased to see this article because I think this is an underappreciated area in research being done in general, not only in hip OA. And so let's get right into it, if that's okay, Maura. Yes, thank you. I was really struck. You identified, you and your colleagues, over 1,700 articles in your literature search. But of those articles, only 14 across 10 different countries met your inclusion criteria. Why do you think so few met your criteria and you were able to bring into your study? Well, I think one of the reasons there were so few was a fair number of the study, well, a large number, about 91% of the studies, once you eliminate uh, duplicates, actually mix exercise with either surgery, so it's a post-op exercise intervention, or with medications. And the real intent of the study was to tease out the relative benefit of therapeutic exercise in relationship to the risk of injury or adverse events. So once we called away all the studies that focus specifically on therapeutic exercise, and then we were interested in randomized control trials, uh, we ended up with our cohort of 14 studies. That's not a lot of studies, uh, RCTs of um, therapeutic exercise in this, uh, this area. I'm surprised. No, it's not. And um, one thing that I wanted clearly to identify was adverse events specifically associated in the population of patients with HIPOA. As you know, um, being also very much interested in arthritis, there are a lot of studies in NEOA. And oftentimes studies that are done in HIP, there are much fewer of them, one. And secondarily, oftentimes it's either concurrent HIP and knee disease. Um, And in that case, with studies that did not tease out the data across hip and knee, we were not able to use those. So there actually are more RCTs, but in fact, because the data was not clearly stratified, it was hard for us to use that data. Makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. You know, an area that uh, there's been a lot written about is specifying the dose, the intensity, the duration of the intervention. And in your review, you reported that exercise intensity was not specified in over half of the intervention arms. And in 10 of the studies, just over 70%, did not report at least one of the essential components of an exercise prescription. That's really disappointing. Uh, Why do you think reporting of the details of the interventions is so incomplete? I think it's due to a number of factors. 
I think first and foremost, oftentimes as physical therapists, we develop interventions, not to say that the interventions were all developed by PTs, but we develop interventions where we use a mix of exercise approaches. And so having this heterogeneity of exercises, whether it's flexibility and strength and aerobic conditioning, I think that's one piece of it. There's a lot to report on what exercise individuals are doing through appendices or whatever, but they, they lose the essence of the details. Um, in studies that were focused predominantly, the arm is focused predominantly on aerobic exercise, I thought perhaps that would be much clearer. You could easily do some sort of percent of a submax test beforehand, um, but that was actually not the case either. So I found that a bit surprising. What we found most consistently, of course, was duration of the exercise session and frequency of exercise, which makes sense a you know, number of times per week. But we know that exercise is medicine and understanding dose is really important. And we'll never be able as a profession or a field interested in exercise as a method to improve health outcomes, uh, to identify appropriate dose response if we don't have all the attributes of the exercise intervention included. Yeah. Yeah. And now another critical area, and I know this wasn't the focus of your review, but you do talk about it in your article, and that is the importance of reporting on exercise adherence across the studies. What did you find on adherence? So adherence was also very vague. Um, there's one researcher whom I must admit I do very much enjoy reading her studies, Kim Bennell, um, who had actually pre-specified both adherence as well as her definition of adverse events. Um, but across the studies, a, an a priori definition of adherence was not included. And thus oftentimes what people would do would be to report the actual adherence um, of exercise within various studies. And that leads to a lot of interpretation, both with the approach to data analysis, but also um, the approach to how we are able to understand the, the relative contribution of the patient during the exercise session. One, another area that um, struck me in reading your study was the difference between reporting of dropouts and the reporting of adverse events. And you, you make note of the fact that there's some confusion among the studies as to what constitutes an adverse event versus a dropout. You want to talk a little bit about that inconsistency that you found? Sure. Um, actually, that was part of the driving reason for doing this. When I had first come up with the concept about five years ago, it was a, an idea about quality of research studies presented at a ULAR conference at a European League of Rheumatism conference, where I was just vaguely identifying areas that I thought were of interest, but I hadn't delved into the depth of it with the systematic review. Um, so I think part of the reason that dropouts may be more likely to be reported than AEs are first that the PRISMA and consort and various um, reporting mechanisms that are now accepted by journals as the appropriate way to report information um, definitely specify dropouts and also the advent of intention to treat analysis. So making sure that you include the subjects in your analysis, regardless of whether they're not completely adhering or have dropped out is important. So I think the reason that, that adverse events are not as clearly tracked is that people really feel that exercise is a benefit. And I 100% agree with that. In the scheme of things, even the number of adverse events we found are much less than the adverse events you would see taking an NSAID, for example. 
but early studies of exercise by Marion Miner and Christina Stenstrom back when we believed that exercise may be harmful to joints that are inflamed and swollen um, did show positive benefits. And again, the intent of the study was not looking at functional outcomes, but more the reporting of adverse events. And so I think that because people see that exercise is relatively good, they may unconsciously not recognize the importance of stating a priori, a definition of, of adverse events. It is a required element of um, a PRISMA evaluation, a systematic review evaluation. There are two pieces do have a statement of adverse event, and some of them weren't explicit. I actually had to look through the paper quite hard to find something. And then secondarily, do you define what an adverse event is and do you discuss severity? And as I mentioned, Kim Bennell's study, which was the one that was honestly so well reported from 2008, both included a definition of AE and severity of AE a priori. And interestingly enough, in that study, she found 16 and 15 AEs reported in each of the two study arms, where in all of the other studies, the highest number of adverse events was one. Yeah, that really raises a lot of concerns, certainly in my mind, when you think about it. And you report in your paper that just over 40% of the studies included a statement of adverse events. And as you just pointed out, only one study really provided a, um, a priori definition of what they meant by an adverse event. So it raises a question in my mind, although the benefits of exercise in this patient population are quite clear, as you rightly point out, you always want to balance the benefits with the, the risks. And if we're not reporting adverse events um, adequately, how do we really know what the risks are? Exactly, and that issue of dropout. So as we look through the paper, and this was really the driving force behind doing this, as we look through the reasons for dropouts, you would see you know, knee, uh, hip exercise, they have hip pain, they have knee pain, they have lower back pain. We as therapists know that could be attributed to the high intensity exercise, of the even if it's low impact aerobic exercise that they're doing. And yet the natural assumption was they dropped out because of pain, but that's really not important. And if they had defined, okay, pain that may last 15, 20 minutes after exercise, but resolves, that's totally different. But you have individuals that literally left the study because of low back, hip and lower extremities. So kin kinematic chain pain, I think that's telling us that we really need to be more specific about our definitions, both of dropout and of adverse events in these studies. So it's quite clear in my mind when I read your paper that we have a real problem here and that um, how adverse events are reported needs to change. What are your suggestions of what should be done in the field to affect that change? So um, I think a couple of things at the author level, really adhering strongly to reporting guidelines such as the consort or the Prisma guidelines is one. I know that many journal editors like yourself actually are explicit about individuals filling out such a document prior to reporting in the studies. I think though that dissemination and adoption of, of this strategy takes a bit more intervention because once the study is complete and they get to the reporting mechanism, it's not as helpful. So 
If we are to allow, which we have in my career, usually you didn't publish your protocol. You, you, you published your study when it was done. If we also encouraged our readership and our researchers in the development of their protocol to think of these a priori and include that in their published protocols, I think we would have a better chance of identifying that before so much time and effort was invested in the actual implementation of the studies. Yeah, we do in PTJ publish protocols, and I think that that will go a long ways. And I think the, the pre-registration process for trials also helps because it specifies some of these elements and we can look at that. Uh, but as you point out, by the time you, you've written it up and you're reporting it, it's too late to fix it. You, right. can, uh, you can identify a problem, but you can't fix it. So the, the protocol stage sounds like a good idea. You know, an idea that a colleague suggested to me and I wonder what your thoughts are about this. In lieu of publishing protocols, this colleague suggested that we might consider the author submitting the study at the protocol stage. And then if we accept the protocol, then by definition, we've accepted the study for publication once the results are final. And the, the argument this colleague was making is it, it might help reduce the tendency of not wanting to publish negative result papers because of the findings. I wonder what your thoughts are of, of that and whether it might help with the issue of adverse events as well. I actually think that that's a great idea, a really great idea. I know that people are always worried about publication bias. And so being able to to review the, the grant before, or sorry, the project before it begins, because not every project, especially RCTs may not have NIH funding where there's a more rigorous type of evaluation of the protocol. Uh, they may have internal funding from an organization, whatever that may be. So I think that that would be a great way of trying to ensure that we have higher quality reporting. Because obviously many of the ideas in these studies were wonderful. Um, looking at proprioceptive um, interventions as well as a combination of therapies, which is exactly what we're doing in clinical practice. So we wanna be able to, to see the types of interventions that we do evaluated in a systematic way. But I think having that pre-review or pre-acceptance of a study based on the quality of the protocol being submitted would allow an opportunity for the editors to provide feedback that's really essential and ensure that we have good quality data when we try to make our decisions. Well, Dr. Iverson, I really wanna thank you for taking the time to talk with me about your study. I think it, it's really uh, zeroing in on a, an important area to improve the science that we're doing in PT and re rehabilitation uh, in the area of arthritis. Uh, and I appreciate you and your colleagues publishing your work in PTJ. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. And if you don't mind, I'd like to um, thank my colleagues. So Johan von Heidegen, who is an orthopedic surgeon, who is my PhD from Karolinska, and um, Kara James, who is a PhD student at Northeastern, who were kind enough to join me in this endeavor. And to thank you for publishing our paper. We also have a knee a systematic review that you've kindly accepted as well. So hopefully we'll have an opportunity to have more and pursue this line of inquiry. So thank you. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you. This is an APTA podcast.